0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Today, as you probably heard through the day today, uh, some of some new they've they've been leaking out, not leaking out, they've been dripping out different parts of the census that was taken. The long form, remember the long form census that was such a big part of uh, big part of the election. Okay, well they've been this has been coming out in bits and pieces every month or so. We get another update, we get another thing about the census. Well, today was on money wage gap. So, uh, income gap, poverty, non-poverty, wealth—whatever you want to call it—and there was some good news. There was definitely some good news today. The the um, the good news is that the median income in Canada has gone up something like ten percent. Like it's been it's been on a rise, and median being you know the middle point, um, it's been going up. That's good. I think I think most people would think that's good. There were some things that were troubling. The number of kids who are, by definition, now by definition, it's those who are below the midpoint would be considered living in poverty. If you are below the median income, you are considered living in poverty. Now, this this to me is a bit of a, I don't want to say a red herring. I don't want to say it's not accurate, but it's, it's, it seems as though it's a little too simplistic this is not what we're going to talk about, but it seems to me the poverty thing is a little too simplistic. There are absolutely people living in poverty. There's unquestionably people living in this country in poverty and and probably a, a lot. Uh, but to simply make a line, a a national number and say at this point, regardless of where you are in the country, if you are below this number for household income, you're living in poverty, seems to me to be, Far too simplistic for the simple reason that if you're below that number in Toronto, living in downtown Toronto, trying to live in the big urban city where things are super expensive. Yeah, you certainly probably are living in poverty, but if you're living out in a rural area or somewhere where the cost of living is far, far lower, you may not be in poverty. You may not be making a load of money, but they're not apples and apples. This is an apples and orange thing. So. The poverty thing today, I found confusing, to be honest with you, a lot of it, because it's unclear, really, it doesn't break down by, you know, percentage based on area costs or whatever else, but that's not what I want to talk about. The, the thing that really stood out when it came to poverty today, and I've talked about this before, I think, but I'm going to talk about it again for a couple of minutes here, because the thing that really stood out is, and I'm taking this from a story, this is from uh, CTV news. There's a line in the story. Children in loan, in one parent households, were three and a half times more likely to live in poverty than those in two parent households. Kids who have one parent are three and a half times more likely to live in poverty than those living with two parents. Now, this is going to, to some people, sound very. Politically incorrect. I understand that. But the reality is we know that there are cases. We know there are situations where a single parent household is entirely unavoidable. It's entirely beyond the parent's control. A parent dies. That You have one parent left. That, that is completely out of your control. A divorce can happen. An affair, the marriage breaks up. Again, something that is largely beyond your control. These are things that are understandable circumstances where you end up with a child in a one-parent household. And I think that, quite honestly, I think that most of us in, in many circumstances, I think most of us who have any level of humanity could understand those circumstances and say, yeah, you know what? This person didn't plan that. This person didn't set out for that. But here's the other side of it that is the different part of that one. As a society, it seems to me, and feel free to take issue with this if you disagree, but it seems to me that we have become quite okay with the idea of single parent by choice. And, you know, that you are, by the rules of Canada, by the laws of the land, that is entirely your choice, that you are allowed to do that. That's not illegal by any stretch. But if we're looking now saying, you know what, you're looking after your kids, your kid, kids, whatever, and children who live in a single-parent household are three and a half times more likely to live in poverty, it seems to me that probably encouraging single parent situations where it's not the result of something out of control isn't a great thing. It just isn't. To To say, well, you know what? It's just your choice. Go ahead. If you want to have a kid by yourself, go ahead. It seems to me we're, we're creating, we're, we're socializing or making normal in our society a thing that says, you know, of course it's going to happen at times, but go ahead. If that's your choice, feel free. To me, that seems wrong. That seems often wrong. I won't say always wrong. That seems often wrong because you may have made that choice, but if these numbers are correct and your kid is three and a half times more likely to grow up in poverty without a chance at a successful life, without a chance at a lot of things, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It doesn't seem to be fair. We like to talk about fairness a lot. Well, who, for whom is that fair? It may be fair for the parent who decides they want to be a single parent just by their choice, but is that fair to the kid? Three and a half times. We keep coming back to that number because it's really important. And I'll tell you why I'm harping on this so much. And I'm not going to lie to you. I am completely biased when it comes to this topic. I'm adopted. My parents, I, I was adopted by my parents. Best thing that ever could have happened to me. But we have somehow... Since I was adopted years and years ago, we seem to have somehow changed the discussion around this. So if a girl who is 14, 15, 16, 17 has a baby, adoption adoption is not the first thing that we would say, hey, you know what, here's an idea. You are beginning your life. You're 15, you're 16, and it could be a boy too if the boy was looking after the baby. Let's give that kid a chance. Three and a half times more likely that child is going to be to grow up in poverty. If you're a teenager, if you're a young person, if you are not someone who has the wherewithal, there are lots of families that would love to adopt a child, but we don't seem to push for that. That doesn't seem to be a thing nowadays, certainly not like it was. When was the last time in a newspaper you saw an adoption announcement in the birth announcements? We don't do that. And yet that seems to be, to me, as someone who lived it, as someone who's been there, that seems to be the thing that we should be pushing hardest for, that we want, let's get some of these kids that are going to grow up in difficult circumstances. It's not giving up. We, we've positioned this now that if you're a young person or whomever who wants to give up, who's thinking about what do I do with this child that I can't raise, it's almost, we've positioned it almost as if you're giving up or you're giving up, you're 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 gonna give away your kid? You're gonna abdicate your responsibility? No uh-uh-uh. You're giving that kid a chance. These numbers are backing it up. Three and a half times more likely to live in poverty if you're in a single parent household. Husb- man or woman, man or woman, mother or father, three and a half times more likely. We should be somehow returning the discussion to say if you're in a position where you are Starting out your life, if you're very young, if you are financially unable to do this, it is not abdicating your responsibility or unloving your baby to give that child up for adoption and give it a chance with a family that would be able to do better. That's, that's sacrificial. That's called giving the kid a chance. That's a loving thing. But we've sort of seems to me anyway, we've moved away from that in our society. You don't hear about this very much, nearly as much anymore and when these kind of numbers come out, when we are seeing tangible numbers that say that kids who are living in a single parent household it do, look it doesn't mean that the mother or the father who's looking after the kid doesn't love the child if they if they are in poverty it means that there could be better opportunities. And some people are going to disagree wildly with that and say, well, how can you possibly say that? How can you say that a mother or a father of a child who is by themselves should give that kid up? That is, that is so wrong. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. When I look at these numbers, all I can think is how is it that we continue to have, how is it that we can continue to think that it's about us this these numbers to me these numbers are not to me as I read these some people will see it differently these numbers are not I'm not reading these about the parents these numbers to me are about the kids these are kids who are not having an opportunity and not and I, I, I to clarify I'm not saying every single parent can't do it no numbers are saying that nobody's saying that there are loads of examples of single parents who have done well. If you're a single parent listening, we're not saying you're a horrible parent. We're not saying you're holding your kid back. We're not saying you're committing your child to a lifetime of poverty. But some probably are. And you know if you, you know where you are. You know where you stand. You know if you are going to be, you, I just really believe that people, it would be very hard It would be very hard, but I really believe that we need to change the discussion, not just individually with the person, but society needs to change and say, you know what? It's okay. In fact, we applaud you if you were to do something. If you find yourself in this circumstance, not by your planning, if you find yourself in this circumstance and you allow your child to have a better shot at life, that's not something we should be turning our nose up at someone for, that's something we should be hugging them for and saying, you just did something unbelievably sacrificial, unbelievably loving. You gave your kid a chance. That's what these census numbers today of all the stuff that came out. That's the thing that jumped out at me. Maybe it's because of my own circumstance. Maybe it's because I'm adopted. I, I I don't dispute that. But children in single-parent households were three and a half times more likely to live in poverty. We're not making, this is not anecdotal stuff. This is not, hey, I saw a kid with a young mother, therefore I believe all young mothers are in a, no. This is the numbers that we are now seeing from the census, from the government, putting raw facts on this thing. We need, I really believe we need to start moving back to the idea that, you know what? It's okay. In fact, we encourage, we applaud. We would pat you on the back. We would hold you up in great esteem. If you're in a position where you are, you, when you realize you can't be everything to that kid, you're not ready. You can't do it. That someone else could actually look after, could take over, could be the parent for your kid. That's, it's a, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I understand That this is something that makes a lot of people queasy because they couldn't imagine giving up a kid that they had had i understand that but i'm telling you from someone on the other end of it we need to start having that discussion a little more we really really do three and a half times more likely to live in poverty not all not all parents not all single parents but three and a half times more likely it's it's something that we need to be talking about. We can't constantly be trying to simply change the symptom. How do we fix this without actually going back to the beginning and say, okay, but is there something we can do before we change all the programs and everything else? Is there something else we can do that can solve the bigger problem before we solve the problem at the top? Radley at 900chml.com if you have a thought, an agreement, a disagreement, I'd be happy to hear from you on this topic, whether you think I'm out of my mind or whether you think I'm onto something. Happy to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. CFL Today announced a change to its practice policies. Now, many of you are saying, why in the world could I possibly care about the CFL's practice policies? I go to games, I watch games. I don't care about their practices. Well, This is not a change to what they do specifically or what drills they run in practice. The CFL, and I really believe, uh, and I don't know if they are saying this or not, but I really believe the CFL noticed, read, and had to just, there's no way around it, had to take to heart the work of Steve Bust. Last week with his collision course, we had Steve on talking about concussions and other injuries in the CFL. It was impossible for anyone in football not to be reading that study that he did with Mac, that that piece, four-part series, and look at it and go, wait a second, we've got to do something to make our game even safer. It's football. You can't make it completely safe, but what do we do? Well, Randy Ambrosi today and the Players Association got together and said, as of now, starting immediately, You will not be able to have fully padded practice, so no full-on collisions in practice. And we're going to next year extend the season by a week so every team gets a third bye week in the schedule for more time to rest and recover. Bubba O'Neill joins me, our friend from CHCH, um, former football player himself, but also now a guy who watches a little more from the sidelines. Uh, Bubba, is this going to work? Is this a thing that will actually cut down on injuries?
1: I think it certainly is. It goes a long way to taking steps to having less injuries, Scott. I think this is a massive win for the Players Association, a massive win for franchises, and I think in the end of the day, a massive win for fans who aren't going to see probably. Or I mean, should see a reduction in injuries, especially the key players like quarterbacks and running backs because of less exposure, less games being played in such a tight amount of time.
0: Yeah, I don't see that it can hurt. That's the, I mean, that's the, the, whether it helps or not, I can't see any way that this actually hurts anything. And so, you know, sometimes when you make a, a change in things, you go, okay, are we, are we actually going to make things worse? I, I, I see no way this can be worse. That's, that's the starting point.
1: I think I think over a I mean I mean obviously we'll see if you know a 10 5 20 year sample of this at the end of the day and I really do think at the end this will this will go uh, a move what was done today is a large move to take uh, you know, the reduction in injuries, and especially head traumas, uh, to reduce that number.
0: Now, do you think the players are going to like this? And the sure. only reason I ask is on its first blush, you would say, well, yeah, of course they're going to like this. They don't have to beat each other up in practice. They get an extra week of the season, but they do have an extra week of the season. Now, I know it's going to be time off, but guys want to be paid if they're going to be around and working longer.
1: No, I don't even think that's a factor. I mean, I've talked to enough players over the last couple years. There are times, and the Ottawa Red Blacks are the perfect example. The Tiger Cats had this happen to them last year. Uh, Every team actually had it happen to them last year. This year, there was a period of the schedule back in early July, I believe, where the Ottawa Red Blacks played three games in 11 days. Now, we're not talking about baseball, basketball, or even hockey, To be able to play three games in such a short amount of time is absolutely astronomical, and you are putting your athletes at an incredible risk, especially by the the second and third game of having serious injuries. They're tired as it is. Players, after a football game, require at least two to three days to have their body recover from what's gone on over 60 minutes of the game.
0: Yeah, and so to cram that in, plus you have to then practice because you have to get up to speed. You can't really, I mean, look, it. I applaud Randy Ambrosi. I've said this before. I will say it again. I thought that when he first came in, his first test was that case with the Hamilton Tiger Cats with Will Hill where he grabbed the official, and I thought Randy Ambrosi swung and missed on that one. But you know what? Since then, when you look at what he's done since then, I'm willing to go back and say, you know what, I'll give you a pass on that first one because I think everything he's done since then has been terrific with this league.
1: I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was in the trenches, he played the game, he understands the Canadian brand of football because he comes from it. Uh, I really admire the fact that he has taken the time to talk to fans, to talk to players, to talk to coaches. And be it games, experience what is going on on the field from all levels. And I think that just brings him a little bit closer. It makes him, I'm going to say, I'm going to use an easy word here, it makes him as a commissioner seem very real and close um, as opposed to other commissioners of other sports.
0: You know what I find, though, really interesting, and I'm not sure why this has happened. In past commissionerships, we have heard repeatedly that with only nine teams and sometimes with only eight owners, because David Braley sometimes owned two teams, it was impossible to make anything happen. As a commissioner, you were just constantly putting out fires and trying to appease the guys who own the teams. And it seems like this guy has been able to walk in and either he's the world's greatest politician with these rich guys who own teams, or the other side of it seems to me, the other possibility is that a lot of these owners are looking at this, this stuff saying, you know what, we need some changes. There are some problems here. We need some changes and he is offering some and so they're willing to let him do this where they might not have two other guys. Whether he's a player or not, a former player, I think they may have looked at some of the stuff and said, we need to change a few things up and he came in with some ideas and they said, fine, do it.
1: Well, I think he, I think his, his acumen is, I mean, his past background as a, as a CEO of, a, I guess I believe it was in the financial industry, probably gives him a good ability of how to work in a boardroom and work with high-powered owners and, and that kind of thing, how to, to set up meetings. And not that Jeffrey Orridge didn't, because Jeffrey Orridge also was, you know, an accomplished businessman, I guess, of sorts, more so in the television industry. And, and I think he's taken what I think Jeffrey sort of set up but here's here's something that that I really believe, and to your your original point there of why their owners and teams seem to be backing off a little bit here, I think the league had mud in its face. They when they went and hired Jeffrey Orridge, I mean, and there was a big you know a lot of noise about him, you know, his background, the fact that he you know he was American, but the fact that he had a TV background and was going to be able to take this sport to a new level. There were some swings and misses there that I thought the league ended up with a little bit of egg on their face. And remember that Ambrose finished second to, to Orange in the hiring in this situation. So I think with the negative issues that happened with Orange, and of course Orange made a big mistake when talking about concussions in the league and saying that really football, there's no real true link between football and concussions. That was a big miss there and made the league look bad that I think having another commissioner come in in a very short space of time, um, he passed the test, obviously, with, with the owners in terms of you know his interview process, and I think the owner said, you know what, we have to back off here because we can't be hiring someone else and then being critical of him and then firing someone else.
0: So do you think, then, that if Randy Ambrose had been hired before Jeffrey Orridge, the last commissioner, Yes. Would he have been able to do these things or are they, again, backing off and letting him do things because, as you say, the last one didn't work out so well? I, see, it's an interesting point you raise because I wonder if two years ago, if Randy Ambrosi had been hired, if he would be stuck in the same treadmill of getting nothing done that the previous commissioners would have been in,
1: and you well could be right there, and I and I won't I will I won't back off that. I think you're you're right there. That may be the situation, but at least from the people I've talked to, the league was really really humbled, um, and I think when you know a year or two into uh, Orge's sort of um, reign as a commissioner. There were a lot of people behind the scenes that are saying, "Did we hire the right guy um but again, I'll go back to the fact that Randy Ambrosi was a former player, and I think that's a huge hit with a lot of people around the league that he understands Canadian football and I think in this situation the, i mean hey let's be honest the league is in a situation where they can they cannot continue to embarrass themselves so uh having him, letting him somewhat do what he wants to do, I think is a huge plus for the league.
0: Let's stick with the CFL for a second, because Friday night the Ticats host the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and they've won two games in a row, and I'm looking at this saying, are the Hamilton Tiger Cats under June Jones, their new coach, are they suddenly way better? Or is the fact that they've played two games now against teams whose kickers apparently forgot their leg at home and were unable to make easy field goals and basically gave the game away. Are the Cats better or just have they been really lucky?
1: No, they're better. They're 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 better. I think they're better led at the quarterback position. You you know me. I've been saying this for weeks upon maybe months, that I thought Jeremiah Masoli needed to get in there. All I know is that the, this previous two was two straight victories as the starting quarterback that the last time I saw this team move the ball effectively and consistently is with him at the quarterback helm. And going back to the beginning of last season, when uh, Zach Caleros was still coming off the rehab and he was off and and they needed to start Masoli for the first six games of the season and he went three and three, everyone was saying, okay, Masoli has kept the ship uh, afloat and now that we got Zach back, we're going to go on a roll. Well, that role never happened, and it actually ended with him losing 12 straight starts, which is one off a Canadian Football League record. So I think the change of quarterback, I think there is a a looser feel with June Jones at the helm and not Ken Austin. I I feel that even in the press room, that he's just a different type of personality, and I feel it's rubbing off on the team. And, of course, there's a a different defensive coordinator as well, too. So even in conversations with the players, there was one player, which I will not name, said the change was needed. So uh, Only one? Uh, well, and, and, well that's, I mean, that was the, the most frank that anyone had ever been with me.
0: Let me follow that up then, because you have June Jones taking over for Kent Austin. There, in the weeks leading up, people were wanting Kent Austin gone. Let me put you right on the spot. Is Kent Austin, was Kent Austin a good coach that just wore out his welcome here, or was Kent Austin honestly a mediocre coach who was surrounded by really great coordinators, and when they started to depart, he was exposed?
1: I think every good coach has good coordinators, so I'll start with that. But I will say Kent Austin is an outstanding, I won't say good, he's an outstanding head coach, but I believe that he has a system especially on the offensive side of the ball. He was the quarterback's coach. He was, you know, in many cases, calling the offensive plays. He has a certain vision of the way the game should be played. But the way I believe he wants the game played, the talent that was on the field was not a good match. At one time, it was. But the last couple years, I don't think it has been. And I think it showed in the sense of what he's trying to do. Look, for example... Against the Ottawa Redblacks, as a team, the Mont, the Montreal, the Hamilton Tiger Cats ran for a hundred and fifty yards. That would have never happened. That's a, the, that's a season. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that could be almost a season for the Tiger Cats under under Ken Austin. So I believe a cha- a slight change of philosophy, mac- mapping your your game plan closer to the skills of your players, and here's an intangible, Scott, which I I think is blatantly obvious when i've talked to some of these players think of you know there are players nikita whitlock is a guy i talked about on the six o'clock news tonight he had two quarterback sacks two tackles and an important tackle on special teams now there's ratio issues and other things that i could get into but guys like that are getting chances and under the new leadership it's like a it's like a fresh new breath of air where everyone starts at zero all over again and you have to prove yourself and other players are getting opportunities that maybe Ken Austin would not have been playing.
0: You may be onto something there. I I do think that the tie Cats have danced around a few landmines with the bad kickers and now they're playing Saskatchewan and it is this happens to be the week that their starting quarterback Kevin Glenn is hurt and can't play. I think they're getting you know you can say and people have said and probably fairly that they're. Were some bad breaks for the Tiger Cats early? They're catching a few good breaks right now.
1: You know what, though? Don't we say this all the time in pro sports that generally the break's even out? Because you're right. There were a number of bad breaks that the Tiger Cats had earlier in the season, and it paid to, and, it, and it all totaled to an 0-8 record. But maybe there's a little payback here. On top of that, too, their schedule was very West dominant in the first half of the season played a lot of West teams, and a lot of them on the road. So with the exception of a trip out to Vancouver later this uh, in October, there's a lot of home games here. And I'm not saying that, you know what, the, that sort of streak of winning games at home, you know, it still exists there in Tigertown. But I don't know about you, I think these players would tell you, we'd much rather play at home than on the road so there is an opportunity for this team we're seeing total mediocrity of this east division the alouettes you're being you're being
0: generous it's not mediocrity (laughs) it's a steaming pile of yak dung is what it is
1: you know the the alouettes are, are are in shambles they've just fired their head coach and defensive coordinator uh the gm is now the head coach again you know like this time it's Kavis Reed not Jim Bob the Argonauts ever since the injury to to Ricky Ray don't seem right and Ottawa have lost their starting quarterback who's arguably the best in the league for possibly the rest of the season so there's a huge opportunity here believe it or not at 2 and 8
0: that's a discussion that we can resume again in a few days because if a team that starts 0 and 8 makes the playoffs, let alone has a home field advantage, let alone could work its way into getting a bye in the first round. This league has huge problems. Huge problems. I'm just saying. That would be like that would be like the Leafs starting this season that their training camp kicks off tomorrow, starting 0 and 40 and having home ice advantage through the Stanley Cup finals. That 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 cannot happen. I'm sorry. It's not an anti-Tycat rant. It's an anti you got to you got to have a league that has some I don't know some credibility. Oh, and eight is anyway. We'll talk, We'll get fired up about that one another day.
1: You're really, you're really fired up.
0: Well, I just, yeah. I think it makes a mockery of the league. Quite honestly, if you start Owen eight, you they should basically be saying to you, "We'll let you finish the season." But, but I
1: thought we've seen this before. We we saw a team that finished what eight, nine, and one last year win the Grey Cup. There was, a BC, okay, they at least there was won. a BC Lions team a couple of years ago under Damon Allen that went 8-10 and ten and won a great cup. All right. going, going further back, wasn't there an Ottawa Red Bl- an Ottawa Rough Riders team under J.C. Watt that won two or three games, and then they ended up getting smoked by Warren Moon in the F.C. One the
0: division. One division is the answer, and I'm hoping that Randy Ambrose's next big move is to say no more of letting these crappy Eastern teams in just because we have to. But One division, six best teams West? get in.
1: What about East versus West? Okay, oh, like the-
0: <laughs> we have the internet now. We have satellite television. We, we live in a small country, a small big country. It's not like anymore we look out at Calgary and go, well, they wear cowboy hats. They're really unique. <laughs> It's, it's one big country, we should have one division, and if you're one of the best six teams you get in, and if you're sixth, you play on the road and you get your butt handed to you by the team that finished first. Just saying, but we're out of time. But we'll we'll pick this up another day because it's a fascinating topic that I would love to have because I really think the league needs to go here. Anyway, I'm way past my time. Bob O'Neill, you can watch him tonight at CHCH at 11 o'clock. Appreciate it, sir.
1: Always a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900
0: CHML. There was a story in the paper today and online at thespec.com. Um, lights, camera, Kenilworth, major blockbuster crew, scouts Hamilton. The whole story is that there is apparently... Uh, a movie production company that wants to block off a chunk of Kenilworth so they can film a scene or scenes from a movie. And apparently this thing is going to be uh, a huge blow, things blowing up and explosions and pyro and whatever. It's probably best. It's probably for the best that they actually alerted people ahead of time. You know, you're lying in bed a block away and suddenly all of Kenilworth is under attack. You're probably going to wonder what's going on. So it's, it's for the best that they let people know. But this ties into something else because I'm sitting at my desk at The Spectator the other day, maybe a week or two ago, and my next guest walks up to me. I've known him for a little while, and he is part of a film crew that is working, trying to find locations to film Part of a TV show, a TV show, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what it is, so I won't say it up front, but a TV show that probably you're aware of that is looking to to do some stuff and they're looking in Hamilton and at the Spectator. Uh, Jonathan Matthews is a location manager around here who joins me now. Jonathan, how are you tonight?
2: I'm good, Scott. How are you?
0: Good. Now, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what that show was. Am I allowed to say?
2: I'll say my answer if you answer this for me. Can I talk to Ben? Because I know what the dwarfs did.
0: We will put you back on with Ben at the end so you can get the answer correct for sure.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I have been told you can name the show.
0: Okay, so they're they're looking to do season two of The Handmaid's Tale, right, from the from the book. And so that they're looking at The Spectator. I guess they're looking at other spots around Hamilton. And when you th- talk about that, and then you talk about this other thing that was in the paper today about this big film shoot, it would lead one to believe that we are a place that is seen as, I guess, an attractive locale for film and TV shoots right now?
2: Absolutely. I mean, producers from all over the world come to Canada, as they call it, Hollywood North, to get different looks that they can cheat, if you will, for major U.S. cities. Hamilton is great in certain areas for Boston, Massachusetts. And also, because the book and our story takes place uh, in that uh, geographical locale, we find very similar architecture in certain parts of Hamilton, um, as well as the great support we get from the Hamilton uh, film and television office, and also the community at large. Um, it's, it's a dead ringer. It's great. It, whereas okay. Toronto's more of a New York, Chicago, you get the larger city with the skyscrapers and whatnot, whereas Hamilton has its own unique cinematic qualities.
0: Well, we know, we've heard over the last number of weeks that uh, there's a filmmaker, many people will be familiar with his name, Guillermo del Toro. I I like to say it with the Latin accent, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, He is positively giddy about Hamilton. He keeps tweeting about us and saying how much he loves the place. But for most people, when you're working for a director or for a production company, does the director really care where the film is being shot as long as you have the background or the scenery that he wants or she wants?
2: Well, no, I I think that's an easy answer. No, I I don't think they care whether they're in Sudbury or North Bay or Hamilton, Toronto. Well, maybe Sudbury. Well, it's the winter, it's cold, but it is a lovely city, too. It is. And they're very helpful with the film industry as well. Um, but no, I, I think that the producer, the director, is go- he's there for the look. He's trying to tell a story. So what backdrop will tell his story best is where he or she is going to go.
0: But price, then, because you talk about, first of all, the fact that the office will help you here, but price must factor in. I mean, is Hamilton a reasonable or even if you know, a cheap alternative to some of the other places, or is it right in line with everything else?
2: Well, I mean, it, that's a really good topic that you hit there. I mean, the, film is a business. So, you know, producers will choose places to film where they're going to get certain tax credits or they're going to get bang for their buck, if you will. Um, taking an entire crew from downtown Toronto with all of the equipment and trucks and whatnot and traveling them, you know, 30, 40 minutes down the QEW to Hamilton, that's not uh, a simple thought that just goes through their mind like, yeah, let's go to Hamilton. It's it's cost analyzed. There's so much that we we look at before we venture that far out of the union zones of downtown Toronto. So Hamilton, I, I don't think at this point in 2017, uh, one can compare prices. I mean, Toronto prices are Toronto prices because of what we're asking for, uh, whereas Hamilton is a different economic engine and, and center, if you will. And, and, and we deal with it in, on its own way.
0: At this point though, uh, it sounds as though, when I read these stories, it sounds like, and what you describe again as the film office, it sounds as though we are very enthusiastic still about having films and TV shows made here. It sounds like we're still pretty excited and pretty open to the concept, maybe not fatigued by it like some other places that get it more might be.
2: Well, I would agree with you. Yes. I mean, we have a great relationship with the Hamilton Film Office, but I would definitely say the honeymoon is over. Is it? Um, Oh, sure. I mean, they show excitement because they, as we, understand the economic backlash of having, you know, 100, 200 people that don't normally reside in Hamilton, staying in the hotels, eating in the restaurants, buying the gas, buying, you know, staples, uh, doing tons of things. I mean, Valentine's Day, we were shooting one day in Hamilton, and I think some florists made it <laughs> thousands of dollars because we all know the prices go up at Valentine's Day. But no, the crew, yeah, they, we buy things. We're people. It's like tourists coming into town. Yes, we work long hours, but we also buy things.
0: Okay, so you're a location manager. So let's let's walk through this for a second just so sure. I, I can understand. Uh, I am a producer, and I say, you know what, uh, Jonathan, I need a um, – a family house, a really, you know, in a a nice neighborhood, I need a family house that's going to fit for this. Walk me through then what your job would be, what your process would be to actually go and find that perfect place that would fit with what they're looking for.
2: First of all, I would ask questions uh, in the presence of the designer um, because it's also the designer that chooses these places. I would ask for the type of architecture. Are we talking a craftsman style house, Georgian style? Is it modern? Is it glass? Does it have steel? it got a big wraparound porch. You know, describe to me what's in your mind's eye, and it's that specific,
0: eh? All right off the bat, okay.
2: Absolutely, black shingles, brown shingles, dormers, windows, uh, uh, bay window, two-car garage, all of those things come in. And then uh, questions like: Is there a sidewalk out front? Is the house set back far? What's its curb appeal? Is it unobstructed? Does it have trees? Does it have shrubs? Uh, Is it on a cul-de-sac? Is it on a rural road? Is it on a um, in a cookie cutter? uh, uh, gated community style uh, subdivision. All of those questions come in and then I download that information to uh, my scouts and uh, the scouts and I uh, will go out and we look for that house.
0: But there's no place right now online where you could, you know, like if I go to realtor.ca, if I was going to buy a house, yeah. I can enter some details about what kind of property, but there's nowhere online is there that would have a, a clearing house where you could put all those details. I mean, you have to actually do the light. You have to go and find this place.
2: Again, great question. No, there, there is a place. Really? Um, yeah, the Ontario Media Development Corporation um, has a Google search engine, if you will, for location managers and location scouts.
0: That's that specific for some of those things that it would say whether it has shutters or dormers or brown roof or all those kind of things?
2: Scott, I can search right down to the postal code. It's very high-tech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can put the type of architecture. I can put uh, the geographical locale. I can put um, two-story, mid-scale, high-end, low-end, clapboard, brick. I can add all of those things into the engine, and it'll search. Now, the search is only as good as the amount of data that we have in the database. So The Ontario Media Development Corporation relies a lot on location scouts and managers that after shows, if there aren't any proprietary, you know, uh, obligations or restrictions, that we can share those location scouting files, and they categorize them and put them online.
0: But in that website, then, would those only be places that have been used for shooting before?
2: Or, yes, that's, that's true, but there's another part, or people that see the benefit of having a film in their house or in their community, and they've volunteered Hmm. and sent their photos of their house in or requested that a scout be sent out to take pictures of it.
0: All right. Okay, let me get to that in just a second because now, okay, so you found, let's say you've got this stuff, you found a house Mm -hmm. that fits, but someone lives there, and when you know, I'm assuming now, another assumption, which is probably going to be wrong, but you would knock up, just walk up and knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Jonathan, I'm a location scout, what do you say? We just we'd like to use your house for a film.
2: Scout, I need a scout. Do you want to start tomorrow? That was perfect. That's exactly what. It
0: <laughs> okay, and yeah. what is the general reaction? Most people go, "Come on," or are they like, "What?" What is the answer more often than not?
2: We get a mixed reaction. I mean, the one that I love is like they look around my shoulders like they're being punked, like there's some <laughs> camera that you know their brother-in-law sent over or something. But no, it's I'm just like the first thing I usually say is I'm not selling anything because people are very hesitant to answer their door these days. Um, but, you know, you greet them with a smile and you tell them the whole deal and you, you drop names of the actors and actresses that are affiliated with the project.
0: That must help.
2: It does. At absolutely. times. Well, I mean, you know, working on The Handmaid's Tale and having Margaret Atwood's name. I mean, yeah, there's there's lots of benefits to the names of the people that are attached to projects. Um, it, they're door openers. But, no, continuing, the you know, you get the wow. Or the, come on, you know, like they don't believe you and it takes you 20 minutes on the front porch to convince them you're authentic and here are your references. And you know, I, I strongly recommend that people, if anyone does knock at your door, especially in these times, that the person that is, you know, on the other side of Location Scout, they have their, the phone numbers that you can give a ring to just to authenticate the person um, before letting a total stranger into your house.
0: By the way, when you say about the actors and actresses, uh, if you are going to film with the spectator, I would really appreciate if you could have Elizabeth Moss swing by just at some point. That would be a very helpful. But anyway, back to this. Um, so, so you tell these people, and does it take usually some kind of convincing for them to buy into the idea that you're legit?
2: No, not usually, because I mean, I think it's also a confidence thing. A lot of like scouts and and location personnel. I mean, we're we we like to clone ourselves as people people, Um, we we talk with the general public, We, we play the role when we're filming more as a liaison between the craziness of the film industry and all the jargon and verbiage back to normal, common sense, layman terms that someone who doesn't work in the industry can totally follow and understand and appreciate.
0: But there would be times, I'm uh, well, I, I, before you came on yeah. in the last hour when I was introducing that you were going to be on here, a very good friend of mine had a his farm used to film Mrs. Soffel with Mel Gibson years and years ago. Right. They walked in and basically redid the entire place. They put up mm-hmm. new walls and they painted and they. there will be some locations that you will have to change some things in, correct? Absolutely. And so when you say, yeah, we'd love to use your house, but you may have walls painted, you may have this, does that change things?
2: Well first of all we always commit to people that we'll return their house to them in the way that we found it or better. Or better, okay. That's a commitment we have and there's a contractual obligation when we sign a location agreement with people. Um, that's how it works. We are committed to return it back. However, if we paint their daughter or their son or whoever's room, gra- grandma's uh, in-law suite in the basement a certain color and they like it, well it's a professional paint job. It wasn't done You know, by uh, any old hack, these are professional painters, and and they've done a great job. So if you like the color, you just had a room painted. Or, in some cases, say the director likes the house and it's so great, but it just has a pane window at the front, and he wants a bay window. Sometimes that happens, too. Wow.
0: All right. And and plus, on top of this, you are paying the people for the use of their house.
2: Yeah, that's a negotiation that's private between the production company and uh, the homeowner or business owner. Um, and there are many factors that we take into, uh, into consideration. Um, you know, we, we, the first thing is, is, what is the place worth to us? Like, how many other places are there that should this deal fall apart, we could just walk down the street and, you know, grab something similar? So there's the business side of it. So a lot of people have in, this, in their mind that, oh, well, I heard from a friend that, you know, they made $5,000 a day by renting their house out to a film company. Right. Did the friend mention to you that they live on the bridal path? Yeah. And they, <laughs> yeah. you know, we shut down a cocktail party on the weekend because we needed to film. Like, there's there's a lot of factors that come into play here that uh, a lot of the general public don't, they don't understand, and nor should they. They're not in, involved with it. But this is one of the big parts that we as the location management, we go through with people to help them first gain a comfort level, uh, then the trust level, and, and then we talk about, you know, what is fair and reasonable for the use of your home and your property.
0: What about the neighbors? Because, okay, so now I've rented my house out and I'm making X thousand dollars and you're painting some rooms and I love it. And it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a big upgrade for me. And hey, this is great. Next, when I see the movie, it's going to be my house. And, and next mm-hmm. door, there are five gigantic trucks on the street and there are people running all over the place. And do you ever get neighbors going seriously? Like, are you really sticking around here?
2: Sometimes, yeah, I mean, it happens. What, one of the things that you touched on earlier is about the you know that large production that was noted in the, in the article the other day. I mean, notification to the neighborhoods is something that it's paramount. It's, it's part of our ABCs. We have to notify the, the community before we film in order to get our permits. and we do it in a certain timeline. If we're asking for after hours or loud explosions outside of noise bylaw times, we're going around and getting signatures from people. The signature indicates that they have been explained, the situation, and they either agree to our events or they disagree. Mm. So it's, it's plain and simple. Or they agree, but they don't want to sign. There's all these different options that the film office gets, they collect. And just like we saw us out of the border, 51% is a majority. And that gets you in. So when you look at the people that are upset, I would guarantee they're in the 49% that didn't want to sign. But, it, it, you know, it's such a hard thing, Scott. You know, what, what do you do when your neighbor wins a million dollars? Do you go over and ask your neighbor for some money? Like, it, how, how does it all work? It's like if, if a house on the street gets ticked, it's almost like they've won the lottery in some people's minds. But there's also a lot of disruption that the people that own the house have gone through, too.
0: Well, and I'm guessing that the forty—I'm guessing that the people in the forty-nine percent also, as soon as the movie comes out, they're the first ones telling all their friends, "Hey, you see that? It's my house. We just drove by my house."
2: Absolutely. You know what? The thing is, is communication. Any neighborhood that I have shot in, and I've I've been in this industry for just on twenty-five years now, and it's always the same. um, On average, you go into a community, and there's always someone on the street that may have sour grapes about it, but then in the end, you find out. They just didn't understand or weren't communicated with well enough to understand when our trucks would be there, what hours of the day we were filming, who is the person I can call when I have a problem. That's the biggest thing. Just got the bottom of the letter.
0: Excuse me, just got a minute or so left here, but one of the things that stands out, and someone actually, I was telling someone that you were coming on today, and they raised what is clearly not a question that would fit with you, but I thought it, Ray, it came to an interesting point that would, they said, you know, I always hear about these stories in California where people have rented out their houses to porn shoots and the neighbors are like, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I know you're not doing porn shoots, but at the same time, do you ever have people when you go and ask to use their house or their business or whatever say, um, could you please tell me what kind of movie this is? So I know whether I'm associating with something I want to be associated with.
2: Absolutely. It's actually and is that a, a fair question? A, absolutely. It's a fair question. How are we depicting their house? How are we depicting a church that we're filming in, or a business, or a law firm? Yeah, people want to know what you're doing there. And there's also a paragraph in the contract that you know says that we are not you know um, engaging in pornographic events or anything defamatory to any religion, race, or um, you know neighborhood or race the type of people.
0: Yeah, I, I and I you know I I don't expect that probably Hamilton is having a whole lot of that going. Maybe who knows? Maybe maybe we're secretly you know under cover of darkness we're a hub for porn shoots. I don't know, but I've never you know come across one and. I've only been in the uh, through the glass here. My producer is uh, is doing the money thing here. I mean, who knows where? Um, but no, it's. I, I would assume that would have been one of the questions that would have come up, though. Ta- just please tell me that this is going to be a movie that you know, if you have kids, that I can take my kids to see or something like that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, people ask that question. And anyone with, you know, like the wherewithal to figure out what someone who's coming onto their property with eighty five of their closest friends, yeah, they they, <laughs> they should know what is being filmed in their house. We keep them very well aware of the process and we'll tell them as much or as little as they want to know.
0: I, you know what, one more thing before I let you go. Does anyone sure. ever say, Hey, yeah, you can use my house on the condition that I get to be an extra?
2: Absolutely. You get that? Yeah and yeah.
0: and is that something we they can, can usually it do? Happen,
2: we can make it happen, yeah, absolutely. sometimes we use that uh that angle when we're renting someone's house. if someone in a higher end house where money clearly isn't the motivator uh it it's it's more about, can I involve your daughters? I can get them right beside Jessica Alba or whoever is the star or lead role, and uh I can have a driver pick them up and take them to set in the morning. <laughs> i I just maybe got that house free of charge
0: well you can use my desk at the spectator uh i loved elizabeth moss and Men. she's you know a- again i'll be a double i'll be whatever you want she can use my desk you can uh, you can use it for free in fact
2: scott if i may say um you know <laughs> on behalf of my producers Handmaid's Tale, we are very excited about the second season as i hope that a lot of the fans are too and we're also very excited about the possibility of doing some filming At your desk near the spectator.
0: (laughs) Jonathan Matthews, a location manager. Uh, I was going to say you might see him around. I don't know, you might see him around. If he comes knocking on your door, I would strongly advise you to listen to him because it sounds like, as you say, it's like winning the lottery. It would be be well worth a discussion, if nothing else. Jonathan, really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
2: Hey, no problem. And by the way, the dwarfs, they're miners.
0: Yeah, okay, well, thank you. (laughs) We will go. That is Jonathan Matthews a uh, location manager for the film industry around here. So if they came to your door, if the, if the film folks came to your door, Ben, and they said, we want it now, you know, I don't know if, if you think they would do it, but if they came to your door would, and they wanted to use your place of residence for a film, would you say yes? Absolutely. See, I'm with you. I'm with you. And if they sign a contract saying, we're going to put it back the way it was, And frankly, seems to me that it's about the safest bet you could have because it would just look awful on them professionally if they didn't, that they're going to go out of their way to do it. I'm like, yeah, sure. What do you want? I'm out of here. I'll find a hotel. No problem. How long do you need? I'm gone. Easy. I don't even, I'm surprised there are people who actually, I I mean, I guess, okay. I guess there are probably circumstances where you can't or don't want to leave your house or be out of the way, you know, okay. I understand. But for most people in a second that said I could, I hate to say this, but I could also understand if I was one of the neighbors and it was a three or four or five day shoot and the road was blocked and there was lots of, I could see that, you know, if my I could see getting a little miffed, I suppose, but you suck it up, you get over it. You're going to be in the movie. Your house is going to be in the movie. You just hope that it's a good movie, not it still haven't seen it. I don't plan to go see it anyway. Uh, Thanks to Jonathan for that one. Oh, and Frank just says, uh, there was just a Christmas special filmed at Jerseyville Road and Lover's Lane in Ancaster. There was snow all over the property in July. Big snowfall in July. There you go. Oh, and another email saying, why don't they close off Kenilworth on Sunday when traffic will be less hindered? I don't know if people are going to be more thrilled about having giant explosions on a Sunday evening than they are on any other night of the week, but... And is Kenilworth really a major thoroughfare? Could you not go the back? Anyway, interesting, interesting topic. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on
2: AM 900 900 CHML.
1: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.